Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, Helen and I are talking with the historian Sarah Churchwell about the meaning of American fascism, then and now. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me talk. Hi, Sarah. Good morning. And Helen. Hi. Where, Sarah, you, you should probably tell us where you are because we always try and check in on that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I am in London, in, and we're still in lockdown. But a different bit ish, of London ish. from Helen. <laughs> so Sarah, um, we're going to get into the history of this, and the word fascism is being used a lot at the moment, and there is a question about really what it means in the American context. But to you know, connect the past to the present, because the past is never past, we're coming up this weekend to a couple of anniversaries and also a big political event, which is the rally that Donald Trump, the re-election rally he's holding in Tulsa. Um, he's had to shift the day to avoid one clash, but it's still happening in Tulsa. Just give us the framing of that. So we're talking about Juneteenth and we're talking about what Tulsa means in the context of this kind of history. Well, and what it means in the context of the killing of George Floyd. Um, and of course, we're talking uh, as the um, protests, the Black Lives Matters protests are going on around the world still after the murder of George Floyd. So Trump's decision to hold a rally in Tulsa on June 19th was an act of really clear provocation to African-Americans, especially in this moment. And both the location and the date are highly symbolic in American history. So June 19th is actually also called Juneteenth. And it was the day that the last slaves were emancipated on June 19th. 1865. It was actually two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation, but that was given in the middle of the Civil War. And so, of course, it wasn't necessarily brought into effect. The Union Army enforced it where they could, but it ended up being a remote part of Texas where the last uh, slaves were finally emancipated on June 19th. And so it became a day of celebration. But part of the reason why African-Americans started celebrating June 19th instead of the dates of the Emancipation Proclamation in September 1862 or when it came into law in 1863 is because of the symbolism of the fact that African-American slaves in Texas, you know, white people deliberately suppressed the Emancipation Proclamation from them, right? I mean, they were, they were kept in slavery two and a half years beyond their liberation. And so that symbolic deferral and the fact that it's belated and that their rights are still not being recognized and that white people are actively denying them the franchise and full liberty and full citizenship is what Juneteenth came to represent. It also became a day of African-American activism 
they would traditionally gather to celebrate it, but also encourage each other to exercise the franchise, to be, you know, participating. It was a really important date of, of celebration, but also of a political awareness in African-American culture. And it became known, as they say, as Juneteenth. And then we come to Tulsa. So this is a separate story and the Trump administration's decision to do this. I'm not sure Trump himself is that well-versed in American history, but clearly somebody around him is deciding to hold this Trump rally on June 19th in Tulsa. So what happened in Tulsa was that in 1921, the worst race riot in American history took place at the end of May, beginning of June And what happened was that there was this very prosperous, thriving African-American community in Tulsa. It was called Greenwood, but it was sometimes known as the Black Wall Street or Little Africa, they also called it. And it was, as I say, it was prosperous. They were, there was this thriving, self-contained Black community. And there was an incident, you'll be amazed to hear, it involved a young Black man being accused of assaulting a white girl as so often in America, racial incidents were sparked with such allegations. And it sparked the white population of Tulsa basically descended on the Greenwood district and burned it to the ground. It was a kind of Kristallnacht, really, in America. They destroyed everything in their sight. They left something like 6,000 African-Americans homeless. In fact, the African-Americans were put into internment camps after the riots so that they would stop provoking white people in a pretty great instance of um, victim blaming. Most estimates think that around 300 people were killed, although some historians put it as high as 500. The reason why this matters so much is because that story was subsequently suppressed. And white official history, first in Oklahoma and then uh, nationally, first said that white people were completely exonerated. It was the black people who started everything. And then they proceeded to just silence it, right? So it just didn't exist. And this history was never taught until the 1970s and 1980s, when as part of the you know revisionist history and reclamations of lost histories, people started to tell these stories again. But it still didn't make its way into the mainstream curriculum. I mean, I certainly wasn't taught it. I learned it as an adult historian looking into the 1920s. And it's one of many stories of that period of 1919 to 1921 of great racial tension and race riots. The Tulsa riot was the worst. So Donald Trump decides that he's going to hold a rally of Trump supporters after the killing of George Floyd in the middle of Black Lives Matter's protests on June 19th in Tulsa. And that's why I said it was an act of deliberate provocation. And it was so outrageous that they were, in fact, forced to move it a day. And now they're holding it on June 20th. But it is still an unbelievably offensive thing to do to African-Americans in this current climate. So I think we should come back to Trump at the end, because now we want to get into some of the history of this. And you used a couple of phrases there that immediately bring up connotations of what's happening in Europe in the 20s and 30s. It was a kind of American Kristallnacht and internment camps. And we want to talk about fascism and whether this is the right frame of reference here. Of course, in the American context, this is also the time of the Ku Klux Klan. So just frame it in the 1920s context, talking about Tulsa, 1921, and what American politics of this kind looks like. Is fascism the word then to describe it? 
That's a really, really important question and one that is a very live and controversial issue, not just among American citizens, but even among you know historians and political scientists, people really getting into this question of whether fascism is the right word for describing what happens in America. And there are, you know, as always with any really difficult debate, there are good arguments on on both sides. But the way I would talk about it in order to try to answer that question is the way Americans at the time were talking about it. What, how did they view it? And so just to set the scene a little bit and then answer your question. So what was happening in the same period, and, and part of the reason why Tulsa happened, it was part of, as I said, a period of great racial tension and unrest in America. And between 1915 and 1921-1922, when the Tulsa riots happened and other riots, was the rise of what's known as the Second Klan the Ku Klux Klan in its second iteration. The first iteration happened immediately after the Civil War. The first Klan was established as a white supremacist backlash to emancipation, right? So it was a response to Juneteenth, if you like. So then the white supremacists create groups like the Klan. And, you know, there were many. The Klan was just the most famous. And they began to organize and retaliate to return Black Americans to conditions of slavery in all but name. And, and you know, we've talked about that before. This is the Reconstruction era, the so-called Redemption era, and the rise of Jim Crow segregation. And during that period, the first Klan was torturing and intimidating and terrorizing African-Americans. But it was, its behavior was so vicious that federal forces did, in fact, eradicate it in the early 1870s. As part of the rewriting of American history that's known as the Lost Cause and part of the attempts of the country to reunite after the Civil War, basically the one thing that white Americans could agree on was white supremacism. And so that was one of the things that helped the country reunify in the early decades, you know, around the turn of the 20th century. And the legends of the Klan persisted. And in 1915, two things happened simultaneously within a few months of each other. The film, The Birth of a Nation, which glorified the first Klan as a noble uprising of white people protecting their way of life and particularly was invested in representing Reconstruction as this terrible era in which incompetent and corrupt black people were ruining the country and, and it's this piece of propaganda about keeping black people out of power. And a few months later, it was followed by the lynching of a Jewish man in Atlanta named, named Leo Frank, uh, who again was accused of assaulting and murdering a young girl. And those two incidents together basically sparked the rebirth of the Klan. And by the early 1920s, it was starting to spread across America. It was really gaining power. And so things like the Tulsa riots, although they weren't necessarily instigated by the Klan, you know, officially, it was all part of a general era of terror, intimidation and racial violence. And as the Klan was rising in 1921, 1922, people across America were saying, what is this thing? Because they hadn't necessarily even been taught about the first Klan and saying, you know, what is going on around the country? And lynching was on the rise. It was spreading north. There were lynchings in Minnesota. There were lynchings in California in the early 1920s. And so the kind of what we would call today the commentariat, as they began explaining this to each other, they looked across the sea, they used the analogy, and they said, if you want to know what the Klan is, look in Italy, because it's exactly what Mussolini is doing with his group that are called the fascist, right? And in 1921, 1922, that was a new term. Mussolini was just appearing on the scene. 
what's interesting to me is that there was a reciprocity there. They were seen as exactly synonymous so that they would similarly explain Mussolini to Americans by saying, well, if you want to know what this fascism thing, it's basically the Klan, but in Italy. And if you want to know what the Klan is, it's basically what Mussolini is doing in Italy, but in America. And this happened over and over and over again. So they saw a very, very, very clear analogy. And this is not just African-Americans and not just Jewish Americans. This is mainstream white political discourse across the country seeing that these are effectively the same because they are white supremacist, nativist, xenophobic, anti-Semitic, racist. I said white supremacist, but it bears repeating. And they could see that they were different names for effectively the same motives and the same project, the same political project. I mean, I think that this, as you say, Sarah, is a is a really complicated question in terms of like how to think about what happens in the United States in comparison to what happens in Europe. I mean, I'm generally a bit more skeptical about thinking that there's a sort of a straight line that runs between European fascism and what was going on in the racialized republic of the United States in the in the 1920s not least actually because clearly the racialized republic of the 1920s America has got a very long history that goes back to the founding of the the United States and fascism in interwar Europe I'm not saying it doesn't have any antecedents in the pre first world war and world but there's I think much sharper discontinuities in the first world war plays such a significant part in the emergence of fascism in Europe and obviously in Italy and in Germany in particular. I think the other thing that is worth saying, though, is that there is a sense in which, particularly actually Hitler himself, looks at the United States and takes aspects of it, including white supremacy and the way in which that that is institutionalised in law in the South as part of his inspiration. I think it's also fair to say that he looks at the longer history of the United States in terms of its conquest going um, westwards and uh, the genocide of the Native American population as something that is his model for labour surround. So it's not that I don't think there are things that can be said. In fact, I think there are very important things that can be said about the ways in which the, the two experiences on one side of the Atlantic and the, and the other connect together. But I do also think there is something quite specific about European fascism in the 1920s that has to be understood in the context of the First World War and the geopolitical fallout of the First World War, and that that is not there in the United States in the same way. I think all of those are really, really important points, but I would actually come back on almost every single one of them. Um, Not to say that you're wrong, but to say we can keep complicating the story that we tell. Um, So when you say we shouldn't draw a straight line, absolutely, we can't draw a straight line. But that's not to say that there aren't really important interrelationships. I don't think we want to think of them as parallels. We need, as you say, to recognize the ways in which they influenced each other at the time. So take one example from exactly the same moment, 1921, 1922. That is exactly the point at which Henry Ford, through his magazine, The Dearborn Independent, was circulating what he called the International Jew, which was basically the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And he promulgated that throughout the United States, Ford himself obviously being a very famous anti-Semite. And the international Jew translated into German was 
along with the protocols, an absolutely foundational text for both Hitler and Goebbels. And this is very, very well established. I mean, they admitted it at the time and historians have very well established it. So, you know, Ford had swastikas in the carpets in his house and, and you know, Hitler hung a picture of Ford over his desk. And this is happening in exactly the same moment. As you said, Hitler learned from American race laws. Again, historians have established that Hitler used American race laws in drawing up the Nuremberg race laws. And in fact, they decided that American race laws were too extreme and a bit over the top and that the Nuremberg race laws would only say that, you know, it wasn't a one drop rule because they decided that that was too far a eugenicist line for the Nazis to take. Part of the reason that Hitler did that was because he wanted a legal precedent, as it were, and he found one in the United States. And what happened was as German fascism, as Nazism rose in the early 1930s, once again, you see African-Americans and Jewish Americans saying, again, this looks like Jim Crow America in ways that we can really recognize. Now, to your point about there's being really important discontinuities, of course there are. But the way I think of this and, and try to you know formulate my own thinking in answer to this very difficult question, I don't think there's a simple answer, to be clear. And I don't think it's a binary. But fascism is ultranationalism. And that means by definition, it is going to be different in every country. It has to be. It can't be foreign. It can't be alien. It's highly situational. It's highly historicized because it's mythologizing these nostalgic ideas of past national greatness. And so its version of patriotism, of ultranationalism has to draw on its own histories, its own cultures, its own context. To the point about the earlier American history, I will just say one thing and then stop, which is that, again, historians of, of European fascism, most notably Robert Paxton, one of the eminent American historians of European fascism, in his Anatomy of Fascism in, I think it was 2004, said that the first clan has a very good claim to be the world's first fascist movement because it was indigenous nativist, because it did not accept the state's authority. It set itself up as an extra legal authority because of its nostalgic racial fantasies, because of its vigilante violence, obviously its paramilitary form, its love of uniforms. You know, he points out that the white hood and the robe can be looked at as a uniform. Now, again, we can argue whether that's a good reading or useful reading, but it is. it seems to me it's certainly a legitimate claim that bears thinking about. So for me as an American cultural historian, what I want to push back against is, is the degree to which American exceptionalism might be operating here to suggest that fascism could not or did not happen in America. And I'm more inclined to say this is what American fascism looked like. And no, it is not the same as European fascism, but that doesn't mean it's not fascism. And to Helen's point about the First World War, in the European context, the First World War is the great disruption and, for many fascist movements, the great betrayal. Does the American Civil War play the same role in American fascism? So, okay, the First World War in the United States, that's a hugely important event, doesn't have that absolute rupture quality that it has for Europe and many European civilizations. But the Civil War does have that. I mean, it's the great rupture. And the rupture stands behind a lot of the myth, right? 
Absolutely. And in a sense, the, the analogies and the differences between the First World War and the, and the Civil War in the American and the European context go to both of your points and to Helen's point about the discontinuity. So one of the reasons why the, the American fascist movements of the 1930s, which we'll come on to, didn't take hold is because the great rupture of the First World War that you're talking about, those conditions didn't pertain in the United States after the First World War. So because the history had developed in a different way, the conditions weren't the same for fascism to take hold. And many American historians will say that that is one of the many factors in keeping fascism from consolidating in America was that the the conditions weren't ripe in the same way. But as you say, the Civil War, uh, David, absolutely was. But by that point, it's 70 years earlier. So it's, it's a much more mythologized event. It's not in people's living memory, except, you know, very old people. So it's not this kind of active incitement to reclaim this sense of a of your own former glory, but rather of a fantasy of a former glory. So it's a bit more attenuated, much more mythologized, but it absolutely works in the same way that there was this sense that, you know, make America great again, right? That there was this imaginary time when America was a homogenous place where everybody lived in harmony. And basically there weren't all of these troublesome, you know, black and immigrant and native communities causing problems, right? And so this very, very simplistic fantasy that the Civil War ruined everything for white people, basically. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm going to ask this to both of you, maybe Helen first. I mean, you can choose who wants to come in. One thing that I think almost everyone associates with European fascism is the centrality of anti-Semitism, and of course, particularly in the case of Nazism. And anti-Semitism, and Terry have already touched on it, is a big part of the American story too, and it is right up to, to today. But Helen, when you think about how to characterize fascism, does anti-Semitism have to be its essential feature in your mind? I mean, it's it's one of those, an, another difficult question. Do we think of anti-Semitism as in some sense definitional of fascism? Because a, a lot depends on the answer to that as to how far we can push the term. Yeah, I mean, again, this is a, you know, this is a very hard question. I mean, is anti-Semitism fundamental to Nazism? Absolutely. There's no sense in which one can think about Nazism without thinking about anti-Semitism and where that ultimately leads in the in the Holocaust. Anti-Semitism is there in Mussolini's fascism, but it doesn't play really quite the same role that it does in Germany. And I think that the reasons for this are, you know, are pretty complicated. But I do think part of it goes back to this issue again of like what the relationship is between European fascism and the the geopolitical situation in Europe. And again, we go back to the the legacy of the the First World War. Now, if we make the, go back to the comparison with the United States, it is clear that the anti-Semitism that we see in interwar America does tie back into the First World War. There's this whole you know absurd narrative about 
Jewish bankers being responsible for the United States getting into the into the First World War, and then in the European version of this, obviously particularly the the German version of this, it becomes bound up in Hitler's mind with Bolshevism, which he attaches to to the Jews and turns into part of his anti-Semitic crusade and all this these people who have betrayed Germany in his mind. So I think that it's hard to to say that you take anti-Semitism away and you have the same kinds of political movements that you don't. But at the same time, I still want to say that there is something that about the geopolitical situation that makes what happens in the United States, you know, like fundamentally different. Because what happens in Europe is about fascism and Nazism being about imperial conquest. They have to be understood, I think, in part in a world in which Germany and Italy failed in European terms as imperial powers. They both want empires. I mean by that Hitler and and Mussolini both want um, empires. Mussolini wanted an empire for Italy in the Balkans and in Africa. Hitler, amongst other things, wanted a German empire that extended eastwards. What we get in the American anti-Semitism and the fascist version of that is in favour of American isolationism, is in favour of America not getting involved in these wars in Eurasia and Europe. And then in some sense, the, the Jews getting blamed for the fact that that is what has happened. Now, obviously, there is more to anti-Semitism in the United States than just that. And you can see that in the Ku Klux Klan, as Sarah has been um, talking about. But the America first and what that means in terms of America withdrawing from Europe is an important part of that story. It, it certainly is. But again, I would want to push back and, and complicate it a little bit more. So as you know, America first as a phrase emerges in the First World War in 1915, before America was in it, but uh, while it was happening. And it became a very popular slogan at the time, but it quickly morphed into an argument about keeping America out of the Treaty of Versailles and out of the League of Nations, as you say, um, in the name of isolationism, but also because this idea that the international bankers had led America into the war. So America first was very early on from 1917, 1918 or so became part of this nascent American interpretation that was, you know, conspiratorially anti-Semitic and said that in putting America first, we needed to push back against against this cabal of the international Jew. And of course, as I said, that's literally what Ford was promulgating in 1921, 1922. That's when that idea really started to take hold in popular American culture. So by the time of the America First Committee of the Second World War that you're referring to, Helen, you actually have 20 years of America First attaching itself to conspiratorial anti-Semitism in the United States to exactly the idea of a Jewish communist plot that Hitler was promulgating. That's absolutely happening in extreme right-wing circles in America at the time. Even to the point about imperialism, there were many people in the circle around Lindbergh and the America First Committee who started to talk you know, loosely, and some of it will have been bluster, and it's not clear how much it could ever have been a political program. But there was certainly a great deal of talk about basically divvying up the world so that Hitler could have uh, Europe and America would take, uh, the United States, I should say, would take the Americas. And there would be this kind of fusion of uh, the Monroe Doctrine with America first. So it would be isolationism, but an isolationism that spread and started to just, you know, conquer the Western Hemisphere. Now, how much of that was 
American political observers at the time being unduly worried about the potential plans. You know, how much conspiratorial thinking on the right started to beget conspiratorial worries on the left is, again, an open and important question. I don't want to suggest that there was any kind of, you know, project that had been designed or was going forward, but it was certainly part of the conversation. Also, I just want to briefly come back to the point about Mussolini as well, which I think is really important. Because you say anti-Semitism as a platform is actually only central to Hitler's version of fascism. And it's not central to Mussolini's version of fascism. It comes in late. There's a sense in which Mussolini was kind of you know, forced into it by the alliance with Hitler. But we also need to remember that Mussolini was busily massacring Ethiopians at the same time. And in fact, in 1935, 1936, African-Americans in a kind of, and I know I'm drawing analogies that Helen thinks are illegitimate, but I think the analogies are also useful, um, that in a kind of analogy to the, to the ways in which Black Lives Matter protests today are finding their own national context. They're not saying that what's happening in Britain to Black people is identical to what's happening in America, but they're seeing the consonances and they're seeing the effects and legacies playing out in recognizably similar ways, in the ways that, you know, we can talk about family resemblances rather than about identity. They're not identical, but there are these strong resemblances. And so African-Americans in 1935, 1936, organized nationwide protests against Mussolini's slaughter of Ethiopians, right? So one of the functions of needing to know your own context can be to create these kinds of silos, even in our own thinking, and to think that these things are disjointed when actually there are all kinds of cross-pollinations that were happening at the same time. That means that they weren't the same, but they were, I, I still believe, interrelated in ways that are really important for us to try to recover. I want to talk in a second about how people use the word fascism now. But a couple more historical questions, if I may. So, Sarah, you mentioned Lindbergh, and a lot of people will, will be aware of one famous vision of what fascism in America might look like is in Philip Roth's novel, The Plot Against America, where in a counterfactual, Lindbergh becomes president of the United States. You know, anti-Semitism is absolutely central to that story and to Roth's imagining of it. It's a novel, it's now a TV series too. Um, the TV series coming out in a very different context than the novel. The novel was post 9-11 America, TV series Trump America. But that was a version of American fascism. It's not on the European model as such, but it clearly parallels the 1930s European story. And it it is for many people the the classic counterfactual. Do you think it's too limiting in a way? I mean, at least possibly that idea that were fascism to come to America this is what it would look like, Charles Lindbergh as president, narrows it too much? I actually think it does. I think that's a really good question. And it is my my major reservation about the plot against America as a novel, because what Roth does there is effectively kind of write the African-American aspect of the story, out of his story, out of his plot against America. Although he even has his family encounter the Klan at the end of the story, where they don't actually encounter them directly, but there's a there's a risk that they might. And he actually, at the very least, puts to one side, marginalizes, and you might even say effaces, the ways in which surely an American fascism would have built itself on 
anti-Black prejudice. You know, again, this was something that American observers at the time saw, right? So they understood that fascism was homegrown by definition. And this is their word. You know, there were American lecturers going around explaining this and saying, an American fascism will look American. This is where those famous quotations about that are attributed to Sinclair Lewis's counterfactual novel, It Can't Happen Here, but actually don't occur in it. This famous phrase about when fascism comes to America, it will come wrapped in the flag and carrying the cross. That's actually a kind of urban myth of a quotation that emerged out of a series of warnings and lines that were delivered and circulated in America in the 1930s. And what they did was they noted that just as existing anti-Semitism had created a platform upon which Hitler could build German fascism, they said, so anti-Black prejudice will create such a platform. One can see that it would. I should say they didn't say it necessarily will. Um, But they said, if it happened, you imagine it would work in the same way. And so it's interesting to me that Roth, who's very, very well versed in American history, obviously, and, and, and his vision of what a fascist anti-Semitic America would look like is harrowingly accurate. I mean, I think it's a I think it's a marvelous novel in all kinds of ways. But for me, one of my reservations is that he I don't think he confronts that question squarely enough about how that would work. But it's also not illegitimate for him to put anti-Semitism at the center of his story because it's really important that we understand the degree to which by the mid to late 1930s, these, um, and I referred to them earlier as American fascist movements. And I did so because they self-identified as American fascist movements. America had colored shirt movements. We didn't just have black shirts and they weren't Mussolini's black shirts. Atlanta had its own black shirts movement, but we had silver shirts and white shirts and khaki shirts and dress shirts and gray shirts. We had Father Coughlin's Christian Front, which became known as the brown shirts. You know, we had the Black Legion. We had the German American Bund, which was the Friends of the Hitler Movement. And they were all conspiratorially anti-Semitic, right? They were all circulating the protocols of the elders of Zion, and they all kind of coalesced around the America First Committee of 1940 and 1941. And Philip Roth was born in 1933. He grew up listening to this stuff. He grew up listening to Father Coughlin on the radio. I mean, Father Coughlin had the biggest radio audience in the world at the time. And in 1938, he went on the radio to defend Kristallnacht as having been a necessary reprisal against that international conspiracy of bankers that we were talking about. He said that Kristallnacht was a reprisal against the Jewish communist plot. And this is the biggest radio audience, not just in America, but in the world at the time. And, and so that's really what Roth understood and was getting at. And, you know, his parents were first generation Jewish immigrants. They would, of course, have been listening in horror to the voices of Father Coughlin on the radio. I'm not suggesting in any way that Roth's vision of an anti-Semitic America is a kind of importation from Europe. On the contrary, he's talking about what those American forces and voices would have created. But in my view, the book would have been even better had he thought through the ways in which African-American racism would surely take part in any American fascism. I think that the... The issue in part with with Roth's way of dealing with this anti-Semitism in America question and its relationship to America's racial politics in the in the 1930s is, is that it risks separating these things out, the anti-Semitism and the racism and putting them with Lindbergh. And then at the end of the, the novel, then Roosevelt is restored to the presidency, you know, having lost the election in, it's in the 1940s and he loses the election in the book. And that, it seems to me, risks 
sort of saying that really all the origin of anti-Semitism in the United States lies with fascism in America in the 1930s. And we know that that simply isn't the case. There were all kinds of political movements in the United States in the 1920s and 30s that were permeated by some form of anti-Semitism. And that wasn't peculiar to the United States um, at all. As we know, tragically, anti-Semitism turns up in all kinds of different politics. I mean, there's scarcely a form, I think, of Western politics that hasn't got some relationship to anti-Semitism. And if we look at what went on in elite universities in 1920s in the United States in terms of discrimination, in terms of discrimination against Jews, and then what the relationship was of the New Deal to race, I think is a very deep and actually quite painful question um, as well. So if you were going to try and tie, as Sarah was suggesting, sort of make fascist America very racist where African-Americans were concerned as well. And then having Roosevelt as the kind of re-establishment of order at the end, that would raise, I think, some awkward questions about how racist the New Deal was, particularly in terms of housing. So I think that that, that, that there's a kind of way in which, in some sense, um, Roth's story is actually too comforting for the way that we should really try to grapple with what was going on in interwar America. So one more thing that I've been thinking about, I, I don't have the ability to answer this question, um, but in this context, we make the comparisons between North American fascism and European fascism. But there's another way of at least potentially describing the American story, which is comparisons with South America and the ways in which authoritarian, militaristic, racist politics can take hold, has taken hold in South American countries. It's also true that in the 1920s and 1930s, there were many fascist movements inspired by Europe in South America, as well as North America. Is there at least a case for thinking that the Europe-North America comparison misses out the ways in which the various iterations of this in North America also have South America parallels? There's certainly a case to be made. And and it really goes to my point about, you know, the kind of limits of everyone's expertise and the way that it encourages us unconsciously to think about our particular areas as being somehow, you know, it becomes a kind of unconscious exceptionalism because it's the boundaries of what you know. And so you think it kind of stands in a bubble and, and works in its own context without being interrelated in these ways. All of which is by way of saying that, that I don't know enough about South American history to my shame to be able to comment in any kind of depth on that. But certainly, I mean, you know, immediately you think about Perón and Argentina, for example. And again, I, I'm sure that, you know, in Argentina, Argentinian historian would come in with exactly, again, analogous questions and debates about whether Perón's movement is best understood as fascism. What is its relationship to fascism? How does it derive out of fascism? How does it differ from fascism? And these are exactly the questions that we need to answer. I mean, I would love for you guys to bring on a South American expert, and believe me, I would tune in. And then obviously how that takes us to Bolsonaro today. There are people like Jason Stanley at Yale arguing right now very vehemently that Bolsonaro is absolutely and needs to be understood as a classically fascist figure. Again, that's beyond the bounds of my expertise, but certainly people who know what they're talking about are making that 
argument and they're making it strongly. So it's certainly an important part of the question. And, and it goes to my kind of broader point, which is, as I say, is kind of against thinking of fascism as something that only happens in Europe and or can't happen in America or didn't happen in America, which isn't to say that I'm certain of the answer. I hope that's clear. But the ways in which I think we need to think it through and keep it an open question and keep thinking through what what fascism means. I mean, part of the problem, we haven't gotten to this, but it's foundational to the whole thing is that it's impossible to define fascism. And one of the reasons it's impossible to define fascism goes back to that point I made about ultranationalism. So it will be singular in each of its contexts, which means that, there, again, people come back to phrases like family resemblance or Umberto Eco's famous idea that fascism is fuzzy. You know, you, can, you know it when you see it, but it's very difficult to pin down with any kind of fixed definition because it just keeps eluding your grasp because each iteration takes its own form. If we then think about the United States in 2020, or indeed over the past few years, the Trump years, the word fascist is used a lot. It was used when he was elected. It's being used a lot in the past few weeks, certainly. There are also other ways of talking about it, gets to my point, which is that the other thing people sometimes say is that the United States is becoming a banana republic or that the United States is failing in ways that they don't want to characterize as fascist. Um, they want to find another frame of reference. Again, what counts as a banana republic is an open question. If we think about the word itself, fascism, in the current context, so we discussed it very briefly um, on this podcast, talking to Jonathan Shanin from The Guardian about the New York Times and the, and the controversy around Tom Cotton's op-ed, Send In the Troops, and the way that The New York Times itself then published another op-ed a couple of days later by Michel Goldberg, calling Tom Cotton's op-ed fascist, you know, basically saying my newspaper two days ago, whatever it was, published a fascist op-ed. I don't know what you both think about this. When people use the word fascist now in that kind of way, is it stretching it too far? We've had the kind of discussion where we've tried to get to the complexity and the nuance of a term that for many people, it's absurd. It's almost obscene to complexify it and nuanceify it. Like you say, Sarah, people know it when they see it. And if they see it in their own newspaper, they want to call it out. What do you feel about, just if we take that example, the use of the word fascist in that context? Well, I think there are really kind of two ways that I think about the question of using fascism in this moment. One is about kind of historical accuracy in the ways that we've been talking about. And the other is about utility, political utility. It's I mean, I literally think about this all day, every day. It's all that I've been working on. And I, um, I, I did want to say in terms of the, the, this may sound like I'm jumping back on something, but I think it's related in terms of the question about Helen's reservations about the ending of the plot against America, about it being too neat and too comforting. It's an exceptionalist ending, right? It says that America can just go back to everything being fine and democracy will be restored. And it's, it's actually, um, as David knows, I've, I've actually been working on an essay reviewing the HBO version of this, which it's worth saying does find a different ending because it won't, it doesn't find that comforting ending in Trump's America. And I think that's a really, really important part of how we 
think about this right now. So there's a kind of urgent question about, will calling Trump fascist do us any good? Will it get us anywhere? Will it change people's minds? Will it help remove him from office? Or will it merely solidify existing political divides? Does it just become reciprocal name calling where we're just going, no, you're a fascist, no, you are. You know, and again, that was something that happened in the 1930s. I mean, Roosevelt was called a fascist, you know, by his critics, right? But so then that's why the definition becomes so important. So you can say, no, this is a fascist that is not a fascist. But then, you know, definitions are murky. So it's a difficult thing to do. In terms of its accuracy, to describe a leader who tear gassed his own citizens so that he could go have a photo op in front of a church, you know, holding a Bible. There's a reason why everybody responded to that with that urban myth quote that fascism would come to America wrapped in a flag and carrying a cross because it looked pretty accurate. And a lot of people who had resisted describing Trump's government as a fascist administration said after that, you know what, like people like Masha Gessen, right, who had said, whatever this is, it isn't fascism and had taken the position, and it's a perfectly defensible position, to call it fascism actually risks treating Trump as an anomaly in American history rather than as a phenomenon um, with deep roots in American history. Now, obviously, I've written about that at length, as you know. So those deep roots, I think, are really important. As I say, those deep roots bring me full circle back to thinking this is fascism. This is what American fascism looks like, and we need to recognize it as such. But that's not the same thing as saying that calling him fascist will actually do the work that we want it to do. And and for me, that remains an open question. If we get into a situation where essentially brutal and inappropriate use of the state's coercive authority against either protesters or people engaging in violence. If we say that that is a sufficient condition of fascism, then I I think it's quite difficult for us to use the word fascism with with any kind of precision, recognising the the difficulties anyway that Sarah has been talking about. I mean, one would hope that liberal democracy isn't, but fascism is not the only form of government or form of politics where the uh, abuse of the state's coercive power happens by leaders. I think my reservations is... I think you both know is since the beginning about calling Trump fascist isn't just about the historical comparison. I think that the way that many people have used it and have been happy, not happy is the wrong way, wrong way of putting that, but willing to see Trump in fascist terms become something that's blinding about how Trump came about and the, the politics of the the American Republic over the past few decades, because clearly there is much in Trump's nativist language that has deep origins in the long history of the United States. But there's a great deal about Trump's ability to appeal to class grievances that has roots in the the American history since the 1970s, and particularly in trade issues. And so I think that the danger of resorting to the he's a fascist narrative is is that it again is it's too comforting and avoids asking hard questions about why Trump was able to make the kinds of appeals as a at least during the election campaign kind of acting as a as a whistleblower in some sense on the corrupt and oligarchic nature of American politics. 
Uh, so first of all, I want to—I just want to clarify what I was saying. I was not suggesting that tear gassing your citizens is a sufficient condition for calling an administration fascist. Uh, on the contrary, but we don't have a kind of litmus test for fascism. But when you start to compile the ways in which the Trump administration's behaviors conform to classic ideas of uh, interwar fascism. You know, we've already mentioned things like the the kind of the regenerative mythologies of making the country great again, the kind of nostalgic agrarianism that's central to it, private paramilitaries. It's important to note that the Trump administration also brought out private paramilitary forces in response to some of these protests, including in the nation's capital, which were reportedly paid for and put together by the attorney general. And then we get to the scapegoating, the idea that there's a Heronvoke part of Trump's nativism that's absolutely central to what he does, that goes back way beyond the 1970s. It goes back at least uh, to Jackson, this idea that some Americans are real Americans and other Americans are not real Americans. And those populist roots that you're talking about, Helen, Father Coughlin appealed to those populist roots, the populist agrarian movements of the 1890s, which were coalescing around white working class grievances were also around that kind of populism. So the issue becomes, as I say, whether we acknowledge that it is useful and reasonable to think about American nativist, conspiratorially anti-Semitic, racist, xenophobic groups as being in some way understandably and recognizably fascist going back in time. And as I say, even to Paxton's argument that you could say that America had the very first fascist movement in the world. None of that is to deny Trump's long history. It's to say maybe we need to recognize that these roots are themselves usefully understood as fascist. As I say, that still remains an open question to me, but I think it is not one that we can dismiss out of hand either. As always, you can find more details about some of the things we referred to in this episode and also Sarah's writings on American fascism and much else in our show notes and on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. Next week, we're going to be talking to the writer and commentator Fintan O'Toole, and we're going to be talking about British politics. We've also got an extra episode coming up soon about the fascinating history of Burma, including what's happening today. Do please join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Politics.